Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 411, Air Force to Health Tech Startup President with Kit Keeling at Orderly Health. Veterans very rarely feel like a task is beneath them. I think we often have a, a collective sense of if there's shit that needs to be shoveled, you know, hand me a shovel and we'll get to it. So that that is probably the most, that and sort of stick to are the two most important qualities of, a, of an entrepreneur. Well, today's conversation is really dense in terms of the amount of wisdom per square second. I loved talking with Kit, similar to the previous episode with Eric. I've known Kit for a little while now, and so it was so great hearing more about his story. A couple things that stood out to me is, first of all, I just respect his vulnerability and authenticity in sharing about how He navigated multiple times in his career and life where things didn't work out the way that he thought they would. Just one example is his work in the ICU in Afghanistan and Iraq, and just having that change his view about medicine and realizing that that path wasn't what he wanted to do. And he goes from there to consulting and then becoming senior at a rapidly growing startup. It just shows that you can adapt and overcome. He talks about hiring, about managing a remote workforce, so many great things. And as always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 410 other episodes just like this. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with Kit. Well, joining me today, also in Denver, Colorado, my guest is Kit Keeling. Kit, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thanks, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'll give a bio and a quick background, but just like for those of you who listened to a couple of weeks ago, we did an interview with Eric Malmstrom. I've actually known Kit for a little while here in Denver. And so it's exciting for me because also similar to Eric, it's like someone I know, but we never really talk shop about military. <laughs> and so I feel like it's exciting to get to know this you know, sliver of, of what makes him who he is. But for those of you who don't know Kit, he is the president, COO and co-founder of Orderly Health. Orderly Health is on a mission to make sure patients have access to the most up-to-date information about healthcare providers. Through proprietary algorithms and machine learning, Orderly improves the accuracy of provider directories and the overall interoperability of data for payers and providers. Kit started out nearby to us right now at the Air Force Academy, and he earned his master, or his MD from the Oregon Health and Science University. He served as the pediatric ICU director in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he has also worked as a consultant at McKinsey and Company in addition to multiple medical positions before his time at Orderly Health. So Kit, let's start off, let's rewind the clock all the way back to when you left the Air Force. What was that first transition like? And I'm, I'm always curious for people like you because the story I tell myself is like, well, if you were into medicine in the military, it makes the transition easier. Yeah, so what was that transition like for you? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Justin. And I think the vast majority of military physicians transition into a similar job in the civilian world. Like I said, the vast majority of my colleagues and friends that I served with uh, simply transitioned into a a similar role in the civilian world. I was on my uh, last deployment. I was at Bagram uh, Air Force Base in Afghanistan. And like you mentioned, I was running sort of all care. I was the only pediatrician on site. And so I ran all care for, for host national children from, it was all, you know, emergent care. So we didn't like do well child checks, but it was all either intensive care or emergency care. And frankly, I was finding myself a little burned out. I, I found that experience in Afghanistan to be 
one of the most rewarding experiences in terms of a difference that I was able to make, but also one of the most awful experiences in terms of just seeing what I saw. As you can imagine, I saw more penetrating trauma in children over there in six months than, than most folks see, even ER docs here and even a busy city like Detroit do in the course of their career. And so I was actually just reevaluating kind of what I wanted to do. And I remember just sort of sitting over there in some downtime and searching the web and, and realizing that I wanted to do something beyond medicine. And I thought the transition out of the military would, would be a good time to just sort of cut ties with my, my past profession and, and move into something different. That being said, I did actually take a job at the Children's Hospital of Colorado here in Denver when I transitioned out and did that for about a year, but pretty soon realized that the, the combination of my experiences really, I didn't have the fire in my belly to continue to do acute care for, for children. And so that's when I made the, the decision to move into management consulting. I knew I wanted to stay involved in healthcare, but move away from the bedside to a more administrative role. And that's sort of what led me to join McKinsey and Company, where I did strategy work for both payers and providers to get a real broad feeling of, of what the healthcare ecosystem looked like, how it functioned. I knew how it functioned on a, you know, from a patient to a provider perspective, but I didn't have a great sense of how the, the overall system functioned or, as probably more aptly put, dysfunctioned. <laughs> I think what's most remarkable about that is I feel like a lot of people, even with that realization, and that level of kind of self-knowledge of like, this is not something I want to do anymore. I imagine a lot of people, especially, I, you know, I have stories in my own head about how much determination it takes to become a doctor and a military doctor. And I can just imagine that drive to persist and say, okay, I'm just going to keep on doing this. I've done all this training. I have all this background. I'm just gonna, I feel like the majority of people would just keep that going until physical or mental failure prevented them from going further. But I just imagine it took a tremendous amount of courage to just say, okay, I'm going to leave the security of all of this that I've built up and I'm going to try something. It's not 100% different. There's like the, the, the healthcare vibe of the, the, what you went into, but it's, it's pretty different. I'm just curious, was that an easy to leave that behind? Was there any doubt or were you just knew in your gut, this is the right call for me? I think that the the latter is true. I knew in my gut that it was the right call, but that didn't make it easy. To your point, you know, I had spent the first 20 years of my career preparing to be at the top of this of the field when I had achieved that. I was an attending physician. I was an educator. I had a, a career ahead of me in that field where the, the, the paychecks would keep coming and the certain level of, of expertise would be acknowledged. And, and I wasn't happy doing it. And I think that was where I said, it doesn't really matter what the paycheck looks like. It doesn't really matter what the, the respect that you're given because of your position within the field. If you're not happy doing it, then, then you need to stop doing it. And there's probably, you know, and I've had friends, for example, that have done the pilot thing. They've gone to the Air Force Academy, been, you know, pilots for, for 20 years, retired, and then made a similar decision to leave flying where they could go very easily transition into a job with the airlines, but have said, you know what, actually, I've, flying has lost its luster. I'm willing to give up some of what I've been training for so many years to do the thing that, that excites me and I'm passionate about. And it was a tough tr transition. I mean, I moved over to McKinsey where I was, an associate where my, you know, I was two standard deviations older than my cohort. And I had to learn a whole set of skills that frankly, people just were better at. I, I didn't know my way around Excel spreadsheets. I didn't know my way around slide decks and PowerPoint presentations. And to kind of swallow my pride and start over at the beginning was what was a challenge. But, you know, I, I will say that there was also some rewarding pieces to that, because I think I came in with a certain maturity and view on, on the world that in perspective that a lot of folks two decades my junior just simply didn't have. And, and they sought me out for 
not necessarily for strategic consulting advice, but rather for just mentorship with how to navigate the complexities of, of work-life balance, how to, what, what does leadership look like, and, and being able to apply some of the lessons that I've learned in the military to McKinsey was, I actually found a lot of value in that. And one last question on that before we move on to the consulting piece. How much of, of your identity was wrapped around the military and being a doctor? Like for me, I didn't plan on going to the military when I was young. It was something I decided in high school when I went to the Naval Academy. So it didn't feel like this deep-rooted set of who I am. But most of the people I know that went into medicine, it feels like that was something from a very young age. And I'm just kind of curious for you, was either the military or medicine, was that kind of deeply rooted and when you were growing up wanting to do that? That's a great question. And my answer is going to be uh, probably a bit unusual. I went to the Air Force Academy to be a fighter pilot. My dad was a fighter pilot, my granddad before him. And I was, that's all I wanted to do. That's the only reason why I applied to the Air Force Academy. And I was at the Air Force Academy. I, I you know, did all the things I could to ensure that I got a pilot training slot upon graduation. I actually had orders in hand to go to Euronado uh, pilot training in, in Texas, which is like the the sort of top gun of the Air Force for pilot training. You get a fighter if you graduate from there. And I thought all my ducks had lined up. I was, everything was where it needed to be. And then in March of my senior year, I was diagnosed with a heart condition and my uh, pilot qualification was, was yanked from me. And I was left sort of, uh, I don't know if the Naval Academy is similar, but at the Air Force Academy, you get your assignment like late in the fall of your senior year. By March, all of the assignments had been given up and they pulled my, my slot and basically said, here's kind of what's left. And I actually got a phone call from the Surgeon General of the Air Force. And he said, I'm really sorry that I can't waive this condition that you have. You've done well academically at the academy. Do you have any interest in going to medical school? And honestly, Justin, the truth was, no, I had zero interest in going to medical school. I'd never once thought about being a doctor. And I just, in the sort of throes of, of depression and not, upon not being able to fly, honestly, it was kind of a flippant decision. I was like, ah, screw it. I'll go to, I'll go to medical school. Sure. And so I applied to medical school. I had to take a year off to be able to take a couple of prereqs, organic chemistry and things like that, and then applied to medical school. And I loved my time as a doctor, but it, it really was my time in the military that it was a much harder break because I just identified with the military culture. I was raised, you know, I moved 13 times before I graduated from high school. I really identified with being in the Air Force and with being a military member. And so it was actually harder for me to transition out of the military than it was for me to transition away from medicine. And I still think that's the case. I still think what I miss now about either the medicine or the military is really the people. And I, and I still do miss the, just the camaraderie and the, the joint purpose that I found really only in the military. And, and I've certainly tried to recreate that outside of it, but it's a challenge. I mean, there's certain things you can do to, to try to recreate it, but it's a fairly unique experience and a unique environment. And, and that, that to me was the hardest transition was, was leaving behind that feeling of being a part of something much bigger, in this case, the military. Well, you know, two things I appreciate from that. I appreciate, first of all, your humility, because if the Surgeon General of the Air Force is calling you, you, you must be doing pretty well <laughs> to have him single you out and call. But what I love about the authenticity and vulnerability of your story is you've got given us two data points where you had your sight set on something. And for me, at least, most of my identity gets wrapped around that. And then th for things outside of your control, your heart condition, and then just the depth of experience you have in, in ICU, you realize that that's not going to work out the way that you had planned. And I feel like that's, you know, I just know from my own experience, that's extremely difficult when you plot out, you know, the dotted line of what your life will look like 
first with being a pilot and then with, with being an ICU doctor. And then you realize that that's not what's your path. That's, that's incredible that you're willing to go and experiment. And I'm curious about the consulting experience. You know, for my time at business school, I always viewed consulting, which was my intended career path, as the reset button of the, I don't know what I want to do. Let me get exposure and, and decide from there. Was that at your experience? And like, what would be your recommendation for listeners about the, the pros and cons of consulting? Yeah, it, that was absolutely my experience, Justin. And that's exactly why I went into it. I, like I said, I knew sort of writ large, I wanted to stay involved in healthcare, but I truthfully didn't know whether that meant going to work for a provider system, a payer system to, to go into pharma. And I think one of the tremendous benefits about consulting is that you do get exposure to a wide range of, of industries and problems that industries are having. And I was very intentional about my time at McKinsey. I chose, I, I didn't want to just rely on my healthcare background, like at being a doctor, because the tendency is you show up at a place like McKinsey and they're like, well, he's an MD, let's put him on these projects where he can have conversations with the other chief medical officers. And I did some of that, but I also very intentionally kind of veered outside of my comfort zone to just get a more broad experience of, of what was out there. And you know, so I, I dabbled in both payer work, pharma work, provider work. I took some studies completely outside of healthcare to really challenge my ability to think critically about problems that other industries are facing. The biggest thing I got from consulting was just working with really smart people. The caliber of talent that a place like McKinsey and the other consulting firms can, can recruit is, is phenomenal. And so there's just a lot of, of peer-to-peer learning and, and learning from you know, the folks who have been at, at consulting firms for a while. The quality of the talent that I worked with on a day-to-day basis was, was truly one of the the most impressive things. And it then leads to a very extensive network following, you know, leaving a place like McKinsey. So I think why I ultimately left consulting was that I actually didn't love the episodic nature of the work. I didn't, I wanted to own something. I wanted to see something through to completion. I felt like I might dive into a project, understand the problem that this company is facing, come up with some great ideas on how to solve it. And then frankly, you just drop out and you don't know whether they actually internalize and implementize those those recommendations or, or essentially what happens. And so I kind of wanted to move into something where I got to see the fruits of my labor or the the results of the mistakes that I make, but but either way to, to, to really try to own something and, and, and grow it. And I had wanted to ask about the genesis of orderly health. Was it kind of you decided to leave consulting and you were looking for what was next and then you stumbled on starting your own thing? Or was this an idea that kind of occurred and pulled you out from consulting? Because I believe you went straight from McKinsey to orderly health. Yeah, I did. I So I knew that I wanted to leave McKinsey. I, and just through networking event, happened to be introduced to the CEO and, and co-founder of Orderly. So Orderly was already in existence when I joined. And we went through a pretty significant pivot, and we can certainly talk about that later if, if that's of interest. But I, I, I believe the, the, uh, the CEO's dad was actually an Air Force Academy grad, so I sort of had a you know an extrinsic bond there. But um, I believed in what he was doing and, and the, the problem that he was trying to solve. And, uh, and, and the other thing was I, was I was looking to stay in Denver for family reasons, and, and remote work wasn't really a thing at the time. So the, the job pool for the kind of things I was looking to do was relatively small here in Denver. And the combination of, of, of being inspired by the mission that Kevin was on and the timing, and I just sort of I jumped shipped and, and jumped right in. How did you meet Kevin what was the company about at that time? And like, what, where were they in this stage? Was it just Kevin? Did he have a team? Paint that picture of what they looked like and, and how you even stumbled into this opportunity. 
Yeah, I mean, they were at the time there were about four. There were four employees: Kevin and another co-founder at the time, and then a couple of engineers. And so they were very small. They were pre-revenue, and I had a great conversation with Kevin. I actually helped him put together a proposal for the first uh, contract that they signed. And so that was sort of his ability to kind of test my mettle and whether or not I could, you know, actually put together a, a cogent proposal and, and understand how to win business over. Um, and it gave me a chance to really understand the inner workings of the business. And so kind of following that test period, I, I um, was offered a, a full-time role as, as the president and, and chief operating officer. Our original product was a chatbot. And essentially it was a front, kind of a digital door to essentially help a digital front door to help patients navigate the healthcare system. And we did that through a number of partnerships. So essentially a patient or an um, insurance company member could type into our system, hey, I think I have a fever. And we would, we would use natural language processing to understand that question and then route them to the API of one of our partners that, that did triage work. So, it, so you'd basically run through their algorithm, but it would come through our, our system. And similarly, if you said, how much is a knee MRI? There was a, we had a, a partnership with a cost transparency tool so that so we'd route, them, route you to, the, to that API. And, and one of the things we found very early on, Justin, was one of the most common questions being asked was, I need to find a new doctor. I just moved to a new state. I just had a baby. I just blew out my knee. Whatever the case might be. And we were getting pretty consistent feedback from our customers that, hey, this doctor is actually not at this location or this doctor is not taking my insurance. And that represented a pretty bad user experience for our customers. So we kind of peeled that onion back. And what we found was the provider directory information, and I'm talking about even just the basics, their name, the location, uh, what their specialty is, what their phone number is, that that data across the healthcare ecosystem was on average 55% accurate, which is pretty profoundly bad, especially for fairly static data. And so about three years ago, we pivoted into attempting to solve that problem. We now have the ability to ingest a lot. There's a lot of data out there. Most of it's not very good. But when you can start to layer in some machine learning and some AI, and, and I know you have to say machine learning and AI to, <laughs> to get funding or to, to be considered you know, relevant these days, but, uh, but you can actually start to very drastically improve the accuracy of those directories. And in, in addition, what we found with one of our first customers is that these big healthcare payers, they, they frankly haven't been terribly innovative over the course of the last 40 years. I think that's changed in the last five, but these, you know, let's say, for example, that you're Blue Cross of Colorado. You may, you may contract with a thousand different provider groups, and those provider groups on a monthly basis are sending in their rosters of, of doctors and, and, and practitioners, and they're coming in via a number of different ways. They're coming in via emails, Excel spreadsheets, carrier pigeons with sticky notes, you know, they're, they're just coming in all these different directions. And so we also found a big appetite for, for, to help clients with just standardizing their data, like creating APIs to be able to manage those rosters where they can just drag and drop a file. We can ingest it, normalize it and standardize it so that data then becomes interoperable with other parts of their system. What was that pivot like? And I want to just accentuate for listeners, I feel like there's no way to overdo it when talking about the level of ambiguity. You know, at the time it was like a four to five-ish person company. There is so much ambiguity. There's no certainty about what's going to work, what's not going to work. Could you tell us a little bit more about, was there a lot of differing opinions of whether to do this? Was it like very clear that this new business was the better opportunity? Was it hard to let go of, all the investments you had made in this chat bot, like what was that 
and, and how long of a period of time did this go over? Was this like a year where you were perseverating over whether this was a thing or was this like, guys, this is the new direction all in on this tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, sort of all of the above to that. It, it's it, w- it was a very challenging decision to make, especially because we had some revenue um, being generated from our, our existing model. So it's really hard as a startup to walk away from something that you finally got a little bit of traction in. That being said, we also sort of felt like the writing was on the wall with, you know, we saw that Amazon and Alexa was starting to introduce a skill that did something similar. So we kind of felt like we were we weren't going to be able to compete with some of the, the competition that was arising out there. And at the same time, we identified this, this opportunity wherein you know, we estimated it to be between a two and a five billion dollar market. And we didn't see a ton of competition there. So it, it was it, it was a, we made the decision, but then you know, actually making that happen was, was a challenge. We had to mothball the, the chatbot, build something from scratch. And this all happened right at the beginning, the end of, of 2019, the beginning of 2020. So right as coronavirus was, was kicking off. So in addition to, to this pivot, the pandemic hit. And I will say we were able to get the Paycheck Protection Program a loan from the government. And that really kept us afloat for about two months to help us through this transition. And, and during that time, we were able to hire a few more folks. We got our first contract. And then at that point, once we saw some traction developing there, we were all in on on really making sure that it was it was bound to succeed. And and just to set context too, can you paint the picture of where you're at today? You're over over 20 employees. I mean, you have made it through a pivot that most you know 90 percent of companies probably don't make it through. That where where is the company today? We do have about we have 24 full time employees right now, with a few more to start in the next couple of weeks. We've gone from 2019, we did maybe a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. 2020, we'll do. Uh, over a million in in recurring revenue, and we have sites to uh, to you know to get that up to closer to uh, five million by next year. So we're definitely in that growth phase. We also just secured our sort of first round of institutional financing, which just alleviates, as you know, having been in the startup world, so much distraction from being able to run the business. Because especially when we're a small team with most of our employees are engineers, so they're, they're kind of behind the scenes doing you know, data science and computer science work. So there weren't a lot of business people. But in addition to trying to sell the product, you're trying to fundraise. And it's just a huge distraction. It takes so much time to get an institutional investor across the line with diligence, et cetera. So we're now at a place where that's finally happened and we can really just be let loose to go out and, and sell and, and you know, just operationally improve our efficiencies and, and just you know, get to work. One, one thing I'm always, you know, I know a lot of our listeners aspire to be entrepreneurs as well. I'm wondering, you know, there's no clear way to do this, but as you look back on your own journey, how important was consulting in preparing for you for where you're at? I know a lot of previous guests will go to business school. Like, I'm just kind of curious, like, could you have done this straight out of the Air Force? Or do you feel like there were skill sets that you were missing that were important to fill in before you were at the stage you're at now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that my answer might differ a little bit for, for other folks out there because my time in the Air Force was spent entirely in medicine. I really didn't have any translatable quote unquote business skills, right? I mean, I had leadership skills. I, you know, I had run various teams in the military, but I, I didn't have truly before I started the interview process for McKinsey, I didn't know the difference between price and cost. I'd never been asked that question or forced to understand that difference. So for me, I think that McKinsey did two things. One, or just consulting in general. One, it, it gave me uh, a much better understanding of how businesses work of the challenges that they face. But the second is that it's a little bit of a, 
a, a market signaler, right? So it, it tells folks in the market that, oh, this person has been at a, a big consulting firm. Clearly, they understand the inner machinations of, of how businesses work. And whether that's true or not, it, it's a little bit like a, it's like a pedigree thing. It's, it's similar to, to going to a good business school. And in addition, it also really does drive up your, your network. Right? You just meet so many people across so many different fields. Um, I think for, for other veterans that are transitioning, um, they probably bring more business acumen. I'm sure they bring more business acumen than I did. I think the challenge for a lot of veterans is how do you translate the business type work that you did in the military into bullets on a resume that actually speak to the, the civilian job market. And I think that can be a challenge. And I know there are a lot of companies out there that really do help veterans fine tune their resumes and translate those experiences from, you know, acronyms that no one's ever heard of and, and types of positions that don't exist in the civilian world into things that make sense for civilian recruiters and employers. And, and the last thing I'll just say is with respect to like entrepreneurship, I mean, I think that veterans are, are very well positioned for entrepreneurialism. I think that they, they have a grit to them. They have a tenacity, a, a willingness to kind of do some of the the sticky things that need to be done, you know. I mean, I didn't have any problem, despite my, you know, advanced age and uh, and and all of the education that I had. I didn't have any problem when it came time. Somebody's got to to order the snacks, right, for the office. Like I, I, veterans, very rarely feel like a task is beneath them. I think we often have a, a collective sense of if, if there's shit that needs to be shoveled, you know, hand me a shovel and we'll get to it. So that that is probably the most that and sort of stick-to-itiveness are the two most important qualities of, a, of an entrepreneur. I was making a note on it. I love that. I think that's such a great quote that veterans do very rarely feel that a task is beneath them. And I've kind of realized that from business school that some of my classmates, at least the story that I had, the projection I had was like, when they were looking at startups, they were looking for other people to do things. They were like capable of leading hundreds of people. So why would they be the one ordering snacks? And my experience at least has been like, man, you know, and I, I remember I interviewed a vet who opened a Chick-fil-A franchise and, you know, he's hiring 18 year olds who don't show up for work. So he is unloading a freezer truck at 4am and he's, you know, this decorated war hero. So it's like so below your pay grade, but at times that's what you have to do to, to, to move the business forward. Is there anything else you would share? You know, sometimes I, I fear that veterans listening glamorize startups and I'm just, it doesn't have to be necessarily negative, but is there anything that you didn't realize about startups and what this journey is like until you are actually there doing it? I'm not sure if this question directly is, or this answer directly uh, responds to your question, but one of the things that I struggled with pretty significantly, and, and frankly, I still do to some extent, I've had a really hard time picking up the phone and either asking for a favor or asking for, like, you know, even just networking. I, I've, I kind of felt like, in the military and, and just sort of the ethos that is there. It's like, you just do it, you get it done. And if you, if you ask for help, it's often seen as a sign of weakness. And, and, and I think that that's, that's very misguided. I think that there's so many doors, there's so many of us out there who have kind of tread before you that there's no reason for you. You're going to have to get your boots dirty, but don't do it unnecessarily. And so there are a lot of folks who have, have been, been before and absolutely are willing to share those experiences and, and give advice and also just give, you know, connections. I mean, we, one, one of my biggest complaints about the military academies writ large is that the networking, the alumni networks, I don't think is as strong as it, I know it's not as strong as those from, from the Ivy leagues, for example. And I think the caliber of, of folks 
at service academies is on par with our most elite institutions. When you graduate from a Harvard or a Yale, you're immediately introduced to this incredible alumni association. It's there to provide guidance and networking. And it's, just, it's getting better within the, the service academy community, for sure. I've certainly seen a lot of folks that have recognized this as a problem, but it, it just it strikes me that we don't have an even stronger just alumni network because there are a lot of folks out there who have done these things who a lot of us could benefit from the sage advice of, of our predecessors. And so I would just encourage folks to, to really not be afraid of, of asking for help. Don't see it as a sign of weakness. See it as a sign of strength and lean into that, lean into the community that you have, that you've built and get advice and, and get help when, when you need it. I love that. I, it makes me think of an exercise we did at business school where it was you had a sticky note and anything that you needed, you'd write on the sticky note and, and put it there. And then you'd go around if you could fix, you know, if you could help anyone, you would put like a sticky note. And the takeaway I had from myself and from my classmates was it was a joy. It actually felt good to be like, oh, I can help that person. And it, it's kind of stuck in my mind because I feel like myself and most veterans, we are averse to asking for help. But I try to remind myself of that, of like, oh, it actually, you know, when people have asked me for help and I've been able to help them, that feels great. It's not like they're intruding on me in ways that's that's beneficial for me as well, even if I don't get anything out of it. Actually, let me back up. You're in an interesting role as COO. You know, my story with that is that COOs get an excuse to do whatever they want. They can kind of dabble in everything. But could you talk to two things? First of all, what do you do today as COO? What's like either typical day or buckets of things that you do? But I'm also curious how that relates today to maybe when you first started, it was four people, because I'm imagining your job description has changed drastically in that amount of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, um, Kevin, the CEO, told me kind of early on that the role of the COO is to constantly be finding ways to work yourself out of a job. And, and what he meant by that was, I think it was pretty good advice, was that as somebody who's in charge of the internal operations of a company, you should constantly be looking to way, ways to make things both efficient and self-maintaining, right? So, you know, the, the, you have this problem, solve it in a way that's repeatable and that doesn't require your input. And then move on to the next the next problem. And and you're right. Like I think to be totally honest, I have sort of moved out of a COO role. I now have a, a VP of operations who does much more of the the operations thing. And and I I have sort of sunk into more of this this president role, which is a bit more amorphous. And and what I've done and have really enjoyed, and I think actually my background in the military really helps with this, is in terms of building the team. So my primary responsibility over the course of the last couple of years has been identifying talent and hiring folks into our team who can do the jobs that we need to get done. I actually really love that. I love being able to go out and, and recruit folks, tap my network, and just you know, figure out who's going to be the right culture fit, who's going to bring the right skill set, and, and building those teams. I think in the military, we're very, very focused on high-performing teams. We have a, you know, the, the recruiting piece in the military is a little bit different because you can't quite cast as wide of a net. You can't hire somebody in as an 04 to do something, right? They have to have been in the military. I mean, there's no lateral transfers into the military. Whereas in the civilian world, you can hire somebody who's never worked at your company to lead the entire company, right? And that's just not an opportunity in the military. But I think being around very high-performing teams, understand what make those teams click and become high-functioning is a real leg up for veterans. And so I've really enjoyed the like culture and people piece of my role. Do you have any advice on hiring? That's one thing none of us get experience of in the military. You know, I think that's one of the skills is we have to work with the tools we're provided with. What has helped you 
evaluate, I'm so aware of all of the biases we have that are not helping us. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you vet people? What has helped you figure out who will make a lasting contribution to the team? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm still working on figuring out the best answer to that. I think one of the things that has really helped me was we as an organization very early on identified what our values were and what our mission was. And I think having a framework with which to, to evaluate candidates, especially as it relates to values, is really important. So our three core values at Orderly are humanity, curiosity, and inclusivity. A lot of people can do can make widgets, right? I mean, and, and I don't mean to, to minimize or sound pejorative about what certain tasks are, but let's just call it making widgets. But not everybody can make widgets and be a, a true, like, team member. And I think what makes somebody a real teammate is folks who share similar values. And so my, my advice would be identify what those values are for you and for your organization, and then seek out folks who em- embody those, those values and make it very explicit from, from day one. And I, I, I'm often the first conversation that a potential employee has with our organization. And within the first 30 minutes, I mention what our values are. I ask what that means to them how they would promote that, how they, how they would, like, what are some things, thoughts they might have about how do we maintain that? And that's been especially true, Justin, with the pivot that we made remote, right? So before COVID, we were a Denver-based company and everybody was coming into the office. With COVID, we, we became a completely distributed workforce. And maintaining that culture across employees that, that you've never even met in person before was a challenge. And so just being very forthright upfront about what your values are and using that as a litmus test for for the employee you know you still need to be able to assess their talents in terms of making widgets but before you even get to that step i think it's crucial to to identify whether or not this person is a good culture fit it's so revealing of orderly health like humanity curiosity inclusivity those are such powerful values. And I respect too, sometimes, you know, you hear these like eight values of a team. It's like, I, I can't remember that, but those are eight that, that really tell a lot about the company that you want to build. And I think you're right. I think we're probably more well-suited to evaluate someone's skill set and ability to perform. And so often when things go awry, it's, it's more values misalignment. And so I like really distilling it down to these three core areas. Any recommendations? It sounds like you use your network quite a bit. Any advice on how you've been able to source? It's oftentimes a challenge of like just finding the right people. Any advice there on on how you filled that pipeline of candidates? It is a challenge, and, and especially with the job market as, as it is right now. Like To be honest, 18 months ago when we kind of started our hiring spree, it was a lot easier. The, the job market is is tough right now. There's a lot. There are far more jobs than there are applicants, and I think you know my advice would be utilize that network. And even if it's just you know this person's not going to come work for you, but that person probably knows another twenty people, and of those twenty people, there might be three or four folks who are looking to make a change. So so really, you know, network. I mean, certainly there are some there are recruiters out there, and, and there are recruiters that have different sort of takes on things, right? So so fi- if you're going to use a recruiter, make sure that the recruiter aligns with the values that you're trying to to you know to to find and and the last thing I'll say is you know one of our big pushes has been around diversity you know there's certainly the the typically talked about diversity with respect to gender and ethnicity but I think it's very important to hire a diverse set of employees just in terms of how they think and folks think about problems differently in Huntsville Alabama than they do in Silicon Valley and I have found tremendous um, value 
in hiring in just those diverse and, and just the way they approach problems. And along with diversity, the other thing that, that goes without saying, but is important enough to, to reiterate, is that diversity begets diversity. And so you know, making it an intentional focus to hire diverse candidates actually makes it easier for once you start being able to recruit diverse candidates, it makes it easier to hire additional diverse candidates. And, and you know, sometimes it takes, um, it, it takes some effort, but, but I certainly see that the tide is shifting dramatically in, in, the, in a very, very positive way. And it's been an exciting kind of journey to be on. I really appreciate that thought of the importance of diversity of perspective and how geography does play a big role in that. And I'm just recognizing my own bias of hiring people like me. It, it really, you really have to like twist in a different way to say like, no, I'm going to actually hire people who think differently than me. Because I, I always think of um, the book about Lincoln, Team of Rivals, and he just did this really incredible job of filling out his cabinet as president with, with his rivals and people who clearly saw things different than him. There's very little value add to having somebody who has the exact same opinions as you, because you already have those opinions, right? It's really, it's incumbent upon us as, as leaders to, to recruit folks who do think about, think about things differently. You may end up coming to the same conclusion that you, you had on day one, but at least you get to kind of spitball and, and problem solve and brainstorm with folks who might have other, other ideas. I love that. Um, I also wanted to ask about, I know that it's probably new to you like it is to, to all of us, but this sense of remote working and having a team that's distributed. Any, anything that you found works well or, or doesn't work well in terms of creating that connection and allowing people to stay, have a sense of connection with others while, while being physically separate? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and I'm sure a lot of, of organizations are struggling with that. I mean, there, there's it's really hard to replicate kind of the water cooler culture where folks just, you know, you're able to hang out by the water cooler and talk about things or, or meet up for a beer after work. And so and a lot of that happens just organically, and it doesn't happen if you're not in the same room. And so we've been very intentional about trying to cultivate some of that. So, for example, we have, we have a stand-up every morning, depending on the team, like you meet with your team, and it's much more tactical around, like, what, what are we doing today? What are the blockers that you might have? But we've also implemented a number of touch points throughout the week and throughout the month that are much less structured and designed to replicate that kind of water cooler culture. So, for example, on Tuesdays, we have an end-of-day uh, meeting that's that's voluntary or it's you know you don't have to show up but it's really more of a kind of shoot the shit just how's everybody doing like what's the you know we have a fantasy football team we debrief on how the weekend went um, on Thursdays we have I think it's a really cool thing that we do on Thursdays we have what's called an ask me anything and each week a new teammates on that quote-unquote hot seat and folks get to submit questions and I facilitate a discussion wherein we just get to know this person a little better for half an hour so we and the questions are you know, when you crowdsource question answer or question asking to a, a group of smart people, like some of the questions are incredibly insightful. And so we just, every Thursday, we get to sort of get to know one of our employees a little bit, little bit better. In addition to that, we you know we have some like all hands meetings once a month. We have a game night, a uh, virtual game night where we, you know, we pay for folks to get, you know, we give them a DoorDash certificate or whatever so they can, they can have dinner. And, you know, we have a bunch of engineers on our team. So there's a bunch of games that folks like to play. And that's kind of one way to, to increase that connectivity. Um, we have a lunch and learn once a month where we buy everybody lunch and someone gives a, a talk. Is somewhat related to what we're doing. It doesn't have to be, it's not a, it's not supposed to be a, a business sharpening discussion, but rather just a, let's learn about what you're passionate about. Somebody may talk about how they're working on some new ML product that doesn't really relate to what we're doing at Orderly, but, but is interesting to learn. And it gives a chance for our employees to, to speak about what they're excited about and for us to hear, hear that as well. And then the last thing I'll say is I, there is nothing that actually replicates in-person time. 
And so we make it a, a um, imperative that we have, we don't mandate it, but, but we do try to get folks together as a whole company once a year. We had our first company offsite uh, just last month. And it was great because I got to meet folks who I hadn't even met in person before. And so we do that once a year. And then we have smaller offsites with like the engineering team to come together in one place for just, you know, a long weekend or, you know, three or four business days just to, to recreate. I was shocked, Justin, when, when we had our offsite last month at how powerful that was. People who had been working together for a year but had never met, to be able to see them in person and spend, and we did very little professional programming. We probably had two hours a day of professional programming and the rest was spent like, hey, go hang out by the pool, go for a hike, go for, you know, do all these things. And, and it was, we came back from that so inspired and so motivated to go out and just do better things. And so, you know, I think that while we have done some things to, to try to replicate the in-person experience virtually, we also realized that, that it really can't be fully replicated and that some in-person time really is warranted. I mean, that's so fantastic. I love the number of things you're doing. To me, that speaks to the priority you're putting on culture and how deliberate and intentional you are in what you're doing. I really like that ask me anything approach. I mean, I'm just very aware, even in our conversation of how much I'm learning about you that I never knew. And it's like, one reason I like podcasts is you have permission to be really invasively curious and you get to know things that you would have never really come across in casual conversation or maybe it expedites that process. And it's also such a good reminder that that in-person is so vital. You know, you can't really do away with that. So I love that you do those annual offsites. I know we're towards the end, so I always like to keep the last question open-ended. And you can take it one of two ways. Either, what have we not talked about that you really want to make sure that you cover before we wrap up? Or it could just be any final words of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with. You know, I think I really miss the camaraderie of the military and I love my current job and I, I get along with all the folks and we have a really great culture, but it, it really just doesn't compare with especially being deployed in service of something greater than oneself where there's no bottom line attached to it. It's just about, it's about getting the mission done and about you know, making sure that your brother and sister in arms are, are taken care of. And, and so I think that that is a very hard thing to replicate. I guess my, my parting thoughts would be, and especially in light of kind of what's happened in the, the last several months with, with Afghanistan, and I know a lot of my fellow you know, veterans are suffering with, from whether it's just disappointment at its most minimal impact or, or just you know, profound depression at its most, you know, most profound impact. Like, do reach out for help. Reach out for help both to, to the folks that you serve with even the folks you haven't served with, like not in terms of your, of your mental health, but also just in terms of like, we are here for you. Like we are a community. And I think sometimes when we take that uniform off, we lose sight of that, but we're still, you know, I still bleed blue. I do. I am absolutely happy to, to help folks in any way that I can. I see it as a way of, of giving back. And you know, that I will also be asking for help too, because I, I haven't reached all the things that I want to accomplish. So I would just encourage all of us to, to not see networking and, and asking for help as a, as a bad thing and, and really embrace that and, 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 you know, go for it. That's great. Where can listeners follow what you're doing at Orderly Health or follow you as a person? Yeah, I, I, one of my biggest uh, short, shortcomings is, is my lack of social media. I think it's what's kind of helped me maintain sanity over the last couple of years is not being on Twitter or not being on, uh, but I am on LinkedIn, um, Kit Keeling. Uh, my, my email address, feel free to write me, is just uh, kit at orderlyhealth.com. Our website's orderlyhealth.com. I, like I said, I'm absolutely happy to, uh, 
to help in any way I can. And, and you'll be surprised that oftentimes when you ask for help, like you mentioned about the, the feeling of satisfaction when you were able to give help, that's one piece. But oftentimes when you ask for help, you realize the person that you're talking to actually receives some tangible benefit from that conversation as well. So my, my door is, is, is open for sure. Thank you so much, kid. I appreciate it. Of course, Justin. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Surface, surface, surface. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.